This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Well, hello. My name is Deborah Satz, and I teach in the philosophy department at Stanford, and I also direct the Center for Ethics and Society. In a minute, my task will be to introduce Shayla Benabib, tonight's Stanford presidential lecturer. But first, I'd like to welcome you on behalf of the Stanford Humanities Center. The presidential lectures are sponsored by the Office of the President, but they're administered by the Humanities Center. And they, they form one of the most prestigious lectures at this university, and they showcase some of the most interesting research being done in the humanities today, hence their home in the Humanities Center. The format of the lecture is going to follow that of the series as a whole, which is to say there will be no question and answer session after tonight's lecture, which is, if you know about the work of the speaker, somewhat interesting <laughs> given her um, emphasis on discussion and dialogue. <laughs> However, <laughs> there will be a discussion session with Professor Benabib tomorrow here at the Humanities Center at 10 a.m where you'll have a chance to ask your questions and engage in discussion in a more informal environment. And I hope very much that you will be able to attend. Now to my task. It's a pleasure to introduce tonight's lecturer, Professor Shayla Benabib. Professor Benabib is the Eugene Meyer Professor of Political Science and Philosophy at Yale. Before coming to Yale, she taught at Boston University, the State University of New York at Stony Brook, the New School for Social Research, and Harvard University. She's received numerous honors and awards, including election to the Academy, American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and she's delivered a number of endowed lecturers, including the Tanner Lectures in Human Values, which she gave at Berkeley, the John Seeley Memorial Lectures, which she gave at Cambridge, and the Gauss Lectures, which she gave at Princeton. She's written, now my counting isn't so good, but at least seven books, edited quite a number of other books, and written numerous essays. Included among her books are Critique, Norm, and Utopia, a study of the normative foundations of critical theory, her first book that established her reputation, and The Rights of Others, Aliens, Citizens, and Residents, which won the Ralph Bunch Award at the American Political Science Association. As befits both the global reach of her topics and her own biography, she's a Turkish-born Jew living in the United States whose work is steeped in European philosophy. Her work has been translated into German, Spanish, French, Italian, Turkish, Swedish, Serbo-Croatian, Hebrew, Japanese, and Chinese. It's always challenging to try and pick out a few central ideas from a rich corpus. Nonetheless, I want to highlight two central preoccupations of Professor Benabib's work. The first, and perhaps the most fundamental theme, concerns the basic question of how to reconcile norms that are universal in reach, norms such as those invoked by the idea of human rights or of autonomy or of equality, with the fact that individuals live in different societies. This latter fact, that individuals live in different societies, moreover, isn't a brute fact. Many of us are committed to the idea of a bounded democracy, to forms of political order that are smaller than the entire globe. Some of the greatest challenges we face as one world relate back to the increasing tensions between the universal and the particular, the cosmopolitan and the local. Indeed, the project of reconciliation is especially difficult, not only because different societies can hold different norms from one another, but also because individuals within these different societies can and do disagree. For example, individuals may disagree on the proper roles of women and men, on the role of religion in public life, on the role of the state in the economy, even on the language in which they think their political community should conduct its affairs. In her books, Professor Benabib tries to show how this tension can be lessened, in part by making the boundaries between the global and the local more porous. In particular, she shows how in democracies, it's possible for outsiders, for aliens and immigrants, 
to contest and renegotiate local norms. She describes this process following Derrida through the logic of iteration, and I suspect we'll hear more about this in tonight's lecture. But the basic idea is that local challenges to universal norms can help shape the local community's self-understanding and in the process give rise to new ways of institutionalizing the universal norms. This is pretty abstract, so let me illustrate it by way of an example, one of her examples. In discussing what has become known as the headscarf affair in France, Benabib presents the concerns of both parties, that of the French government, which viewed the wearing of the scarf by Muslim girls as a challenge to the French commitment to the secular state, and the perspective of the girls and their parents who sought freedom of religion. As is well known, despite great effort and debate by the Muslim population in France, young girls were initially banned from wearing any visible religious symbols. In the face of such a ruling, the girls' continued defiance and resistance invoked their democratic right to freedom of expression and the right to practice their religion. According to Ben Abib, these girls were utilizing democratic tools of civic engagement and freedom of religious expression to challenge the state and demand their rights. In this case, she suggests, we find the beginnings of a process by which French citizenship is renegotiated and made more universal via a dialogue in which the Muslim girls can speak back to the state about the importance of the headscarf. Mm -hmm. So we've got a two-way conversation going between the local and the global. This is an admirable vision of cosmopolitanism centered around the pivotal figure of the resident alien. Cosmopolitanism appears here as a move against the localism of politics, as a means of inviting in the resident alien and showing her respect. This is also a challenging and genuinely original vision of cosmopolitanism. One question to ask, but I won't ask it now because that's off the table, is whether this pivot, this pivotal figure, the resident alien, gives us enough leverage to deal with some other familiar global-local tensions, such as the obligation of rich nations to poorer ones. Mm -hmm. But I'll leave such questions for another time, like tomorrow morning. Instead, I hope I've indicated the general lines of how Ben Abib presents a specifically political version of cosmopolitanism. A second theme of her work, and here I'll be briefer, is the use of discourse theory a theory associated with the German philosopher Jürgen Habermas, to underwrite a politics of democracy and inclusion. The basic idea of this theory is that through free and reasoned deliberation, through uncoerced discussion, human beings can determine the best rules and institutions that should govern them. Moreover, Habermas argued that only the power of the better argument can actually justify such rules and institutions. Raw power can't justify, it can only coerce. The ideal society, then, is a deliberative democracy where members can justify to one another the policies that they endorse. Benabib agrees. But unlike Habermas, she believes that the scope of democratic discussion must range beyond questions of justice to encompass other domains of life, to custom and culture, to ideals of a good life, and so on. She rejects the overly rationalistic and com compartmentalized versions of discourse ethics that place too many things of importance off the table, pushing them into a realm of private decision. Her conception of democracy thus challenges Habermas for drawing overly rigid boundaries between private and public spheres, and instead she suggests that the boundaries between the political and the private might usefully be thought of as fluid and porous. So that's another image, the image of the fluid and porous that's also thematically echoed in the writings about the cosmopolitan and the local. Her democracy is more unruly and pluralistic than Habermas's, more likely to engage controversial questions of men and women's roles, of education and moral development, and I myself think it's better for it. So, 
Her writings on democracy and on cosmopolitanism are complex and bound to be controversial. But it should be clear that she's swinging at some very large and important issues that as citizens in a globalizing world, we cannot ignore. And she's doing so with great insight, showing us how a liberal perspective based in philosophy but attendant to facts can contribute to our understanding of these two big ideas, democracy and cosmopolitanism. So please join me in welcoming Professor Benabib, who will deliver tonight's lecture, Cosmopolitan Norms, Human Rights, and Democratic Iterations. I have to make sure that I'm properly wired. Uh, is everything on, both sets of microphones? All right, let me begin by uh, thanking the uh, Stanford Center for the Humanities for this honor and for this invitation, and Deborah Satz for this, uh, not for her, but for the general kind of lecture introductions for this unusually insightful introduction. It's always a pleasure to be introduced by a philosopher. She already stated the general themes of tonight's lecture as well. And I want to say one consequence of the kind of cosmopolitanism that I'm seeming to be practicing these days is that I'm taking too many airplanes. I was in Frankfurt and Berlin about a week ago, the result of which is that I have an awful head cold. So if I start at some point, you know, sort of stopping, my voice breaks or something, bear with me. Uh, you know, I hope I can go through tonight's uh, lecture without having to really interrupt it. The status of international law and of transnational legal agreements and treaties with respect to the sovereignty claims of liberal democracies has become a highly contentious theoretical and political issue. On September 18, 2008, the New York Times carried an article by Adam Liptak entitled, US Court, a Longtime Beacon is Now Guiding Fewer Nations. Liptak detailed how, in the last decade, citations to decisions of the US Supreme Court had declined, while the influence of the European Court of Human Rights and the Canadian Supreme Court had grown. This evidence was all the more surprising since so many of these courts and their leading constitutional documents, such as the Indian Constitution of 1949, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms of 1982, the New Zealand Bill of Rights of 1990, and the South African Constitution of 1996, all had drawn on American constitutional principles at their inception. At stake is not only the esteem in which the US Supreme Court is held worldwide, but the standing of international and foreign law in the US courts itself. In his highly controversial decision that struck down the death penalty for juvenile delinquents, Justice Anthony Kennedy cited the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, the African Charter on the Rights and Welfare of the Child, among other documents. In his dissenting opinion, Justice Anthony Scalia thundered, I'm quoting, and this is on your handout, the basic premise of the court's argument that American law should conform to the laws of the rest of the world ought to be rejected out of hand. Seeing this as an all or nothing equation, Justice Scalia drove to a reductio ad absurdum. The court, he said, should either profess its willingness to reconsider all these matters in the light of the views of foreigners, or else it should cease putting forth foreigners' views as part of the reasoned basis of its decisions. To invoke alien law when it agrees with one's own thinking and ignore it otherwise is not reasoned decision-making, he said, but sophistry, end of quote. This controversy in the US Supreme Court concerns not only the heft and weight of foreign courts in influencing the decisions of the Supreme Court justices, but broader issues such as, what is the proper epistemology of judicial decision-making? Why should judges not learn from other colleagues who have considered similar problems in their own jurisdictions. Isn't legal epistemology enriched by looking across the border and, God forbid, even the ocean? Citing a foreign ruling does not convert it into a binding precedent, does it? 
Opposing this liberal-minded problem-solving approach to judicial decision-making that would learn and borrow from other courts and international documents is not only Justice Antonin Scalia, but Justice, Chief Justice John Roberts as well. Justice Roberts considered the citing of foreign law to be not an innocent exercise in decision-making, but a compromising or dilution of sovereignty. Liptak quotes Justice Roberts from his 2005 confirmation hearings. Again, in your handout, uh, Justice Roberts said, if we are relying on a decision from a German judge about what our constitution means, no president accountable to the people appointed that judge, and no Senate accounted to the people confirmed that judge. And yet he's playing a role in shaping the law that binds people in this country. End of quote. But by blurring over the distinction between citing an opinion and creating a precedent, Justice Roberts raises the specter of the weakening of democratic sovereignty and judicial accountability. What indeed is the status of international law in a world of increasing interdependence? Do these agreements dilute sovereignty? What is the source of the anxieties and fears invoked by so many in these debates about the problematic relation of transnational and international legal norms and democratic sovereignty. Let me distinguish between foreign, international, and transnational law from the standpoint of a political theorist rather than a legal scholar. By foreign law, I will broadly understand special obligations, privileges, and encumbrances which emerge among states as a consequence of bilateral or multilateral treaties. Thus, tax agreements, commercial contracts, and the like among countries pertaining to individuals or corporations are prime examples. By international law, I understand public legal conventions pertaining to the world community at large, some of which may be formulated in written form, such as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is, and others of which, such as what are called Euskogen's norms, are unwritten but pertain to customary international law. Yuskogen's norms mean that any treaties among nations and international agreements which engage in gross human rights violations by advocating genocide, ethnic cleansing, slavery, mass murder are eo ipso valid. Yuskogen's norms bind any international treaty that nations can enter into. Now, in defining transnational law, I will follow Harold Coe's processual focus on transnational legal process, who writes, quote, the theory and practice of how public and private actors, including nation states, international organizations, multinational in enterprises, non-governmental organizations, and private individuals interact in a variety of public and private, domestic and international fora, to make, interpret, and enforce rules of transnational law. Transnational law is both dynamic, mutating from public to private, from domestic to international, and back again, and constitutive in the sense of operating to reconstitute national interests. Duly executed foreign and international law is binding upon lawmakers. As the US Constitution itself, let us remember, states on, in Article 6 on the status of treaties. In this respect, there is no contradiction between the will of democratic legislatures and international law and treaties. Entering into such agreements or declining to do so is itself a crucial aspect of democratic sovereignty. Yet unlike some jurisdictions in which foreign and international law become part of domestic law, in the US, treaties are not self-executing and require congressional ratification. What about the status then of multilateral treaties concerning human rights in particular? And this is what I will be focusing on. I will raise this question, not with specific reference to the US case alone, but against the background of larger transformations in international law, which are part and parcel of the emerging new global 
order, or some will claim disorder, and we will talk about that. Again, let me emphasize, I approach these questions as a political philosopher and not as a lawyer. I want to look at the alleged conflict between one class of international legal norms in particular, namely those pertaining to human rights, broadly understood, and argue that in fact, the alleged conflict between such norms and democratic sovereignty derives from an inadequate understanding of how international and transnational legal norms function. Such norms, I want to argue, enhance rather than undermining popular sovereignty. In other words, what I am maintaining is that the supposed conflict between international and transnational law and democratic sovereignty is based on an inadequate model of how law functions and my argument will be that in fact these agreements can be seen as enhancing rather than undermining democratic sovereignty and I'm going to try to make this argument with respect to one set of transnational legal norms in particular those concerning human rights as opposed to let's say commercial agreements or agreements concerning uh, climate change etc. This is a very big picture and I can only really, you know, I'm only equipped uh, to bite, you know, on one part of it and try to clarify it. The argument presented in this paper bears upon but does not lead to a definitive position regarding the global justice debate in contemporary political philosophy, which Professor Deborah Satz mentioned in her introduction. One aspect of that global justice debate between Rawlsians such as Thomas Nagel and more cosmopolitan theorists such as Thomas Pogge, as well as Joshua Cohen, concerns the picture of the world order from which we proceed. I agree with cosmopolitans that the world picture of the law of nations in Rawls's work is inadequate, but also concede that this point alone cannot determine the nature and extent of obligations of justice among nations and individuals in the world community. But legal developments matter, and we need to correct the picture of national autarky on the basis of which Rawls at least wrote the law of nations. I will outline the further normative implications of my argument in the concluding sections of this paper. Let me now move to the second point from international to cosmopolitan norms. It is now widely accepted that since the U UN Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, we have entered a phase in the evolution of global civil society, which is characterized by a transition from international to cosmopolitan norms of justice. While norms of international law emerge, as I have outlined through treaty obligations, cosmopolitan norms accrue to individuals considered as moral and legal persons in a worldwide civil society. Even if cosmopolitan norms may also originate through treaty-like obligations, such as the UN Charter and the various human rights covenants can be considered for their member states, their peculiarity is that they bind states and their representatives, sometimes and often against the will of the signatories themselves. This is the uniqueness of the many human rights agreements concluded since World War II. I want to describe this phenomenon as multilateral covenantalism. Let me list here briefly the numerous human rights declarations which have been signed by a majority of the world states since the 1948 Universal Declaration. It's every so often important to remind oneself of these um, uh, agreements. The United Nations Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide adopted by the General Assembly on December 9, 1948. The Convention on Refugees, which entered into force in 1954. The International Convention on Civil and Political Rights, signed in 1966 and entered into force in 1976 with 152 countries signing it. The International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights entered into force the same year and with similar number of signatories and the last I looked, not ratified by the US Congress. The Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, otherwise known as SIDAO, signed in 1979 and entered into 1981. 
These are some of the best known among many other treaties and conventions. But what does all this really mean? What possible significance do these multilateral human covenants have if states continuously and brazenly violate them? Are these not mere words at worst or aspirational ideas at best, which have little traction in limiting state conduct? Can these treaties be considered law at all rather than aspirational documents? In contemporary thought across the board, whether in the humanities, in the social sciences, or in legal theory, Terms such as globalization and empire are often used to capture these transformations as well. Yet these terms, I want to argue, are greatly misleading in that they fail to address the distinctiveness of cosmopolitan norms, or at least they are not adequate. Defenders of economic globalization, such as Thomas Friedman, at least in his earlier work, The World is Flat, reduce cosmopolitan norms to a thin version of the human rights to life, liberty, equality, and property, which are supposed to accompany the spread of free markets and trading practices the world over. In this respect, neoliberal theories of globalization join hands with neo-Marxist theories of empire, most notably Tony Negri and Michael Hart. As is well known, Hart and Negri distinguish between imperialism and empire in order to capture the novel logic of the international order. While imperialism, it is said, refers to a predatory, extractive, and exploitative order through which one or more sovereign power imposes its will upon others, empire refers to an anonymous network of rules, regulations, and structures which entrap one in the system of global capitalism. Empire, in their famous words, is a hegemon without a center. Global capitalism requires the protection of the rights of the individual to freely exchange goods and services in the marketplace. Above all, global capitalism demands that contracts be upheld, pacta sunt servanda, that contracts be predictable and capable of execution. Empire, then, is the ever-expanding power of global capital to bring farther and farther reaches of the world into its grip. So in this analysis, the development of international human rights norms are simply, if you wish, a kind of epiphenomenon to the development of global capitalist relations. A more interesting version of the empire thesis has been recently provided by James Tully, who names such cosmopolitan rights discourse, quote, the Trojan horse of a neo-imperial order extending throughout the globe. The two cosmopolitan rights, rights tally, harking back to the development of cosmopolitan discourse in the 18th century, namely of the trading company to trade and the voluntary organizations to convert, that is, convert the natives to Christianity, also fit together in the same way as with the nation state. The participatory right to converse with and try to convert the natives complements the primary right of commerce. From the perspective of non-Western civilizations and diverse citizenship, the two cosmopolitan rights appear as the Trojan horse of Western imperialism. Another version of the argument, and there are many out there, so in order to be able to make my point, I think I have to address you know, what other the contending theories are. Another version of the argument that the spread of cosmopolitan norms heralds a project of hegemony has been advanced by Kim Shepley and Jean Cowan. According to this analysis, it is the creation of an international emergency situation, primarily through the actions of the UN Security Council, which must be paid attention to. Quote, the seemingly arbitrary redefinition of domestic rights violations as a threat to international peace and security and the selective imposition of debilitating sanctions, military invasions, and authoritarian occupation administered by the Security Council or by states acting unilaterally, framed as enforcement of the values of the international community, gave us some pause. They, she continues, Jean Cohen, this discursive framework opened a Pandora's box, the import of which is becoming clear only now in the third post-911 phase of the transformation of public 
international law. The argument here is that the Security Council is usurping the lawmaking capacities and in legislating against terrorism in favor of humanitarian emergencies and post-peacekeeping regimes and the like, it is violating privacy as well as sovereignty rights. The member states of the UN can neither oppose these measures really nor can they amend them since the amendment rules place the UN Security Council out of bounds. The connection between these actions of the Security Council and cosmopolitan norms pertaining to human rights is that formulas such as the obligation and the responsibility to protect, which have been increasingly endorsed by the presidency of the UN and which are logical consequences of viewing every individual as a being entitled to rights within the global civil society, become slippery slopes towards the creation of an international emergency situation prodded by the actions of the UN Security Council. As Mahmoud Mamdani puts it in, a, in biting terms, first in an article in The Nation, which is now part of a big book that he's working on on these issues, I'm quoting, the new humanitarian order officially adopted at the UN's 2005 World Summit claims responsibility for the protection of vulnerable populations, whereas the language of sovereignty is profoundly political, that of humanitarian intervention is profoundly anti-political. The international humanitarian order, writes Mamdani, does not acknowledge citizenship. Instead, it turns citizens into wards." End of quote. Now, there is a great deal in these objections that should be taken seriously and that ought to give one pause. Both neoliberal theorists of the world is flat school and critics of the neo-imperialist capital hegemony recapitulate a well-known Marxist critique which views the discourse of human rights as the ideological veneer enabling the spread of commodity relations. Certainly, there is and was a historical as well as conceptual link between the universalization of market forces and the rise of the view of the individual as a self-determining and free being, capable of disposing over her goods as well as actions. But, I will argue, human rights norms are not norms of person, property, and contract alone, and they cannot be reduced to norms protecting free market transactions. Human rights norms, such as freedom of speech, association, assembly, entitlements to socioeconomic equality are also citizens' rights, subtending and enabling collective action and resistance to the very processes of rapacious capitalist development. Many of the international human rights covenants contain, in fact, provisions against the exploitative spread of market freedoms in that they protect union and associational rights, rights of free speech, equal pay for equal work, workers' health, social security, and retirement benefits. Global capitalism, which creates special free trade zones, is often directly in violation of these human rights covenants. The charge that the defense of these cosmopolitan rights has unwillingly given rise to a responsibility to protect is more complicated. A very good example of the slippery slope from the responsibility to protect to the duty to intervene by military force if necessary occurred during the great typhoon that hit Myanmar, Burma in spring 2008. You may recall that Bernard Kushner, the former president of Médecins Sans Frontières, foreign minister of France, argued that the nations of the world had a duty to intervene even against the will of the secretive Myanmar military junta. And Robert Kaplan, the conservative thinker, concurred with him and suggested that the US Navy could move up the river delta to Myanmar and that once it did so, the mission of humanitarian aid to the victims of the cyclone could easily morph into one of nation building. Only this time, one would be self-conscious about this task and apply the crate and barrel principle outright. If you break it, you own it. Huh? I do not wish to deny, therefore, the many ambivalences, contradictions, and treacherous double meanings 
of the current world situation, which often transforms cosmopolitan intents into hegemonic nightmares. However, I do wish to claim that some of these general assertions and criticisms derive from a faulty understanding of multilateral covenantalism in that they view the new international legal order as if it were a smooth command structure emanating from a hegemonic source, whether this be global capitalism, the modern nation state as complicit in the spread of global capitalism, or even the UN Security Council itself. In all these diagnoses, little attention is paid to the social dissemination of human rights norms throughout member states and to the legal, social, cultural, and political institutions through which this takes place. But I want to argue the distinguishing feature of the period we are in cannot be captured through the bon mot of globalization and empire. Rather, we are facing the rise of an international human rights regime while the relationship between state sovereignty and such norms is becoming more and more contentious and conflictual. I will argue, however, that these human rights instruments can empower democracies by creating new vocabularies for claim making for citizens in signatory states, as well as opening new channels of mobilization for civil society actors who then become part of the transnational networks of rights activism and hegemonic resistance. In recent works, such as The Rights of Others and Another Cosmopolitanism, I have argued that this understanding of cosmopolitanism in terms of the legal and moral status of the individual in the world civil society goes back to Kant's concept of Weltbürgerrecht as expounded in his essay, Perpetual Priest or Sum Ewigen Frieden. I will not be concerned with this genealogy in my lecture, nor with the philosophical problems of the justification of human rights, except very briefly now in the next section where I set out the terms of my argument. Rather, in this lecture, I want to suggest the model of democratic iterations one more time for analyzing the relationship between the complex transnational legal and cosmopolitan norms and the will of democratic majorities. So I will be working both at the philosophical and sociological levels, if you wish, which I think all arguments really at some point about global justice have to do. We need to toggle back and forth, however untidy this process may be. Let me begin with some brief philosophical clarifications. I want to argue that rights claims are in general of the following sort. I can justify to you with good reasons that you and I should respect each other's reciprocal claim to act in certain ways and not to act in others and to enjoy certain resources and services. So a rights claim is a claim in the first place of justification addressed to another. Some rights claims are about liberties. That is, to do or to abstain from doing certain things without anybody else having a moral claim to oblige me to act or not to act in certain ways. Liberty rights generate duties of forbearance. Other rights claims are about entitlement to resources. Such rights, let us say the right to an elementary school education or to secure neighborhoods, entail obligations on the part of others, whether these be individuals or institutions, to act in certain ways and to provide certain material goods. As Jeremy Waldron's observed, such human rights issue in cascading obligations. Rights always have implications for the interconnected obligations and responsibilities of individuals. For me, and please accept this as a premise for which I cannot argue in this lecture, for me, human rights or basic rights are moral principles that need to be embedded in a system of legal norms such as to protect the exercise of communicative freedom to which all individuals are entitled, which they are capable of. First and foremost, as a moral being capable of communicative freedom, you have a fundamental right to have rights. The right to have rights in, this is Hannah Arendt's phrase, but I'm uh, developing this here. The right to have rights, in my view, involves the acknowledgement of your identity as a generalized as well as a concrete other. 
If I recognize you as a being entitled to rights only because you are like me, then I deny your fundamental individuality, which entails your being different. If I refuse to recognize you as a being entitled to rights because you are so other to me, then I deny our common humanity. The standpoint of the generalized other requires us to view each and every human being as a being entitled to the same rights and duties we would want to ascribe to ourselves. In assuming the standpoint, we abstract from the individuality and the concrete identity of the other. We assume that the other, like ourselves, is a being who has concrete needs, desires, and affects. But what constitutes his or her moral dignity is not what differentiates us from each other, but rather what we, as speaking and acting and embodied beings, have in common. Our relation to the other is governed by the norms of formal equality and reciprocity, each is entitled to expect from us what we can expect from him or her. In treating you in accordance with these norms, I confirm in your person the rights of humanity, and I have a legitimate claim that you will do the same in relation to me. The standpoint of the concrete other, by contrast, requires us to view each and every being as an individual with an affective emotional constitution concrete history, an individual as well as collective identity, and in many cases, as having more than one such collective identity. In assuming the standpoint, we bracket what constitutes our commonality and focus on individuality. Our relation to the other is governed by the norms of equity and complementary reciprocity. Our differences in this case complement rather than exclude one another. In treating you in accordance with these norms, I confirm not only your humanity, but your human individuality. If the standpoint of the generalized other expresses the norm of respect, that of the concrete other experiences, anticipates, I'm sorry, experiences of altruism and solidarity. Such reciprocal recognition of each other as beings who have the right to have rights, as generalized and as concrete others, involves political struggles, social movements, and learning processes within and across classes, genders, nations, ethnic groups, religious faiths, etc. This is the true meaning of universalism, I believe. Universalism does not consist in an essence or human nature which we are all said to possess, but rather in experiences of establishing commonality across diversity, conflict, divide, and struggle. Universalism, in this sense, is an aspiration a moral goal to strive for, it is not a fact, a description of the way the world is or the way human nature is. Human rights, on this admittedly very brief account, but I have tried to give a more full-throated defense in other places, human rights on this account then embody principles which need contextualization and specification in the form of legal norms. How is this legal content to be shaped? Basic human rights, although they are based on the moral principle of the communicative freedom of the person, are also legal rights, i.e. rights that require embodiment and instantiation in a specific legal framework. As Ronald Dworkin has observed, human rights straddle that line between morality and justice. They enable us to judge the legitimacy of the law. The core content on human rights would form part of any conception of the right to have rights as well. These would include minimally the rights to life liberty, including to freedom from slavery, serfdom, forced occupation, as well as protecting against sexual violence and sexual slavery. The right to some form of personal property, equal freedom of thought, including religion, expression, association, and representation. Furthermore, liberty requires provisions in John Rawls's words for the equal value of liberty through the guarantee not only of socioeconomic goods, but also through the right of self-government. Now let me raise at this point a question concerning the legitimate range of rights. And this is also what is at stake in the debate about international human rights covenants and democratic sovereignty. What is the legitimate range of variation in uh, self-governing democratic societies about how we interpret these rights. I mean, these are enormously abstract principles. They need concretization. How do we determine that, and how do we determine their legitimate 
range. If, for example, we agree on the centrality of a principle such as freedom of religious expression, must we accept that minority religions in a society are entitled to rights of public expression equally with the majority, as I would argue, or can we maintain that freedom of religious expression is compatible with some reasonable restriction upon its exercise, as Rawls had claimed in the Law of Peoples? Certainly, the juridical, constitutional, as well as common law traditions of each human society, the history of their sedimented interpretations, their internal debates and disagreements will shape the legal articulation of human rights. For example, while equality before the law is a fundamental principle for all societies observing the rule of law, in many societies such as Canada, Israel, and India, to take but a few, equality before the law is considered quite compatible with special immunities and entitlements which accrue to individuals in virtue of their belonging to different cultural, linguistic, and religious groups. In other words, you can have perfectly democratic societies with a very extensive understanding of group rights or what Kim Lika calls multicultural citizenship. There is a legitimate range in the variation and even implementation of such a basic right as equality before the law. But the legitimacy of this range of variation and interpretation is crucially dependent upon the principle of self-government. So this is a controversial thesis. My thesis is that without the right to self-government, which is exercised through proper legal and political channels, we cannot justify the range of variation in the content of basic human rights as being legitimate. In other words, if the range of variation in the interpretation and in implementation of human rights results from institutions of democratic self-government, they have a prima facie claim on legitimacy. But in the absence of the right to self-government, the range of variation in the interpretation of these basic rights is, I would say, not prima facie acceptable. Herein lies the distinctiveness of an approach based on communicative freedom. Freedom of expression and association, then, are not merely citizens' political rights, the content of which can vary from polity to polity. They are crucial conditions for the recognition of individuals as beings who live in a political order of whose legitimacy they have been convinced with good reasons. They undergird the communicative exercise of freedom, and therefore, they are basic human rights as well. Only if the people are viewed not merely as subject to the law, but also as authors of the law, can the contextualization and interpretation of human rights be set to result from public and free processes of democratic opinion and will formation. Such contextualization, in addition to being subject to various legal traditions in different countries, attains democratic legitimacy insofar as it is carried out through the interaction of legal and political institutions within free public spheres in civil society. When such rights principles are appropriated by people as their own, they lose their parochialism as well as the suspicion of Western paternalism associated with them. I call such processes of appropriation democratic iterations. By democratic iterations, I mean complex processes of public argument, deliberation, and exchange through which universalist rights claims are contested and contextualized, invoked and revoked, posited and repositioned throughout the legal and political institutions as well as in the associations of civil society. In the process of repeating a term or a concept, we never simply produce a replica of the first intended usage or its original meaning. Rather, every repetition is a form of variation. Every iteration, iterare from the Latin, transforms meaning, adds to it, enriches it. The iteration and interpretation of norms and of every aspect of the universe of value is never merely an act of repetition, therefore. Iteration involves making sense of an authoritative original, if there is such, in a new and different context. The antecedent thereby is reposited and resignified by a subsequent usage and references. Meaning is enhanced and transformed. Conversely, when the creative appropriation of that authoritative original ceases, 
or stops making sense, then the original loses its authority upon us as well. In other words, iteration is also a way of appropriating and transform, if you wish, the meaning uh, of um, um, almost the past and tradition at large, not just uh, documents. Now, if democratic iterations are necessary in order for us to judge the legitimacy of a range of variation in the interpretation of a right claim, how can we assess whether democratic iterations have taken place rather than demagogic processes of manipulation or authoritarian indoctrination? Do not democratic iterations themselves presuppose some standards of rights to be properly evaluated? I accept here Jürgen Habermas's insight, quote, that the democratic principle states that only those statutes may claim legitimacy that can meet with the assent of all citizens, Zustimmung, not consent, of all citizens in a discursive process of legislation which has been legally constituted, end of quote. The legal constitution of a discursive procedure of legislation is only possible in a society that institutionalizes a communicative framework through which individuals as citizens or residents can participate in opinion and will formation regarding the laws which are to regulate their lives in common. Democratic legitimacy then reaches back to principles of normative justification, though the two are not identical. Democratic iterations do not alter conditions of the normative validity of practical discourses that are established independently of them. Rather, democratic iterations enable us to judge as legitimate or illegitimate processes of opinion and will formation through which rights claims are contextualized and contested expanded and revised through actual institutional practices in the light of such criteria. Such criteria of judgment of normative validity, which I'm distinguishing from democratic legitimacy, enable us to distinguish a de facto consensus from a rationally motivated one. In other words, democratic iterations uh, is itself a concept that has certain normative presuppositions and it isn't simply the mere act of iterare or the mere act of the creative appropriation of a significant norm that it also enhances its democratic legitimacy in uh, this process of the repositing of rights norms. Let me now come back after this theoretical clarifications to the last two sections of my paper. Uh, what then is the interaction? between cosmopolitan norms, which I spoke about at the beginning of this lecture, and actual legislative processes? And how can this model of democratic iterations help us understand such processes better? Because the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is said by some to be only a declaration of principles, which does not entail mechanisms for enforcement, some argue that it does not function as law, while others see it as a different kind of law. In several articles, my colleague Judith Resnick has argued that by ratifying treaties, domestic obligations are also altered, and that particularly in a federal system such as ours, judges duly regard valid treaties as binding law. Resnick calls such processes laws migration, and cites numerous examples. She says, quote, federalism is also a path for the movement of international rights across borders, as it can be seen from the adoption by mayors, local city councils, state legislatures, and state judges of transnational rights, including the United Nations Charter and the Convention to Eliminate All Forms of Discrimination Against Women and the Kyoto Protocol on Global Warming. Such actions are often translocal, with municipalities and states joining together to shape rules that cross borders, a process of the interaction of the local and the global that Deborah Satz already mentioned. Another common method of implementation for UN provisions are the establishment of expert bodies chartered to elaborate the meaning of conventions by promulgating general comments and by receiving reports from member states, which in turn are obliged to detail how they are compliant with or failing to live up to their commitments as parties to various conventions. Furthermore, in some jurisdictions, but not generally in the United States, 
international obligations can be a direct source of legally enforceable rights through litigation in national courts. In other words, our system is dualistic with respect to domestic and international law. Some systems, such as the Netherlands, for example, are monistic. Again, you know, a legal difference. In addition to processes of laws migration, as Judith Resnick names them, and the establishment of expert bodies, which report uh, to uh, UN um, uh, bodies de in themselves, cosmopolitan norms enshrined in multilateral covenants can enter processes of democratic iterations in specific polities via the action of social movements and civil society actors. In a forthcoming article entitled Global Feminism, Citizenship and the State, the Iranian sociologist Valentin Mogadam analyzes the effects of an international human rights regime of transnational civil society and of a global public sphere on women's rights in Muslim countries. This is a volume that Judith Resnick and I have edited with over 14 contributions that is called Women, uh, Gender Borders and Citizenship, Mobility and Immobility, and it's coming out from NYU Press in the spring. Mogadam, who considers case studies from the Republic of Iran and the Kingdom of Morocco, in addition to Egypt, Algeria, and Turkey, explores how local communities or national borders are affected by globalized norms. She asks, what of the migration and mobility of feminist ideas and their practitioners? How do local struggles intersect with global discourses on women's rights? What role is played by feminists in the diaspora and what is the impact of the state? By analyzing the formation of women's rights and feminist organizations, both within specific countries and through transnational feminist networks, she argues that international conferences and treaties such as SIDAO have created tools that women tailor to their own context. Mogadam maps the significant variations in women's legal status and social positions across the Muslim world. Yet in general, she claims, similar patterns of women's second-class citizenship can be observed. Citizenship is usually transmitted through the father, and marriage laws give men more rights than women have. In both Iran and Morocco, for example, the state, the family, and economic forms of dependency create what Magadam calls the patriarchal gender contract. Responding, however, in the 1980s to efforts to strengthen the application of gendered Muslim family law, various women's networks have come into being. Nine women from Algeria, Sudan, Morocco, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Iran, Mauritius, and Tanzania formed an action committee named Women Living Under Muslim Laws, which serves now as a clearinghouse for information about struggles and strategies. Women Living Under Muslim Laws includes women with different approaches to religion. Some are anti-religious, against the hijab, for example. Such Others, such as Malaysia's Sisters in Islam, are observant Muslims. Some women work to abandon religious strictures, while others challenge interpretation of religious laws and make arguments from within texts and traditions. Mogadam identifies features of these efforts to distinguish their work from counterparts in North America and Europe. Many Middle Eastern women's groups display a tendency, she says, to work with men and to engage state agencies rather than to adopt the more radical feminist postures characteristic of Western feminism. Furthermore, these groups are relatively isolated from the transnational feminist networks, partly in, because of language barriers. Yet by re reviewing recent conflicts in Iran and in Morocco on family rights, Mogadam argues that the organization Women Living Under Muslim Laws, along with the Women Learning Project, has had an impact through interactions between state-centered and transnational action. Thus, she concludes, the integration of North and South in the global circuits of capital and the construction of a transnational public sphere in opposition to the dark side of globalization has meant that feminism is not Western, but global. An extraordinarily interesting case 
of transnational democratic iterations occurred when in the course of a debate in Canada, and we really don't understand Canada at all, or very well, I find whenever I teach uh, Canada, an extraordinarily interesting case of democratic iterations occurred when in the course of a debate in Canada concerning whether or not religious arbitration courts ought to be legalized, Canadian women, Muslim women turned to women living under Muslim law to help them overturn Muslim arbitration courts. And this case is worth considering in some detail, very briefly. Many countries now promote alternative dispute resolution to create state-enforced private settlements of conflicts in lieu of adjudication of rights in the regular courts. As Audrey Macklin explains, under the law of Canadian province of Ontario, women are rights holders when families dissolve and they can seek compensation for household labors that enabled, for example, their husbands to develop their careers. Ontario also permits resolutions through negotiations which can result in domestic contract, contracts. In addition, when disputants use arbitration, these outcomes are enforceable in court. In 2003, a then new Islamic Institute for Civil Justice offered to arbitrate family and inheritance conflicts under Muslim law, prompting an inquiry about whether faith-based arbitration ought to be given legal force. Opposition came from the Canadian Council of Muslim Women who worked with the transnational group Women Living Under Muslim Laws, discussed by Mogadam. Reliant on networks as Canadians, as women, as immigrants, and as Muslims, the opponents built constituencies both locally and globally, just as they argued from national and transnational principles, including the Universal Declarations of Human Rights, Commitment to Equality and Dignity. Proponents of faith-based resolutions were similarly domestic and international, and I find this fascinating. Supporting faith-based resolutions were the Christian Legal Fellowship, not no, Sabra, the Salvation Army, B'nai Berith of Canada, the Sunni Masjid al-Nur, and the Isla Ismaili Muslims, who are a much more liberal, you know, uh, group. Okay, but just note not the alliances there. The denouement was Canadian legislation that does not prohibit parties from turning to faith-based tribunals but gives such judgments no legally enforceable effect. In other words, you can obtain a judgment if you wish, but the courts are not going to enforce it. As Macklin details, women played central roles in this case expressing political citizenship in the public sphere of law reform and doing so through transnational and transcultural claims of equality. She writes, claiming their entitlement as legal citizens of Canada to participate in governance, they demand, demanded equal citizenship as Canadian women. At the same time, they pointedly refused to renounce their cultural citizenship or to confine their gender critique to the specific cultural context only. Such practices not only render the meaning of citizenship more complex by revealing the interaction of the language of universal rights and culturally embedded identities, they expand the vocabulary of public claim making in democracies and aid them in evolving into strong democracies. Strong democracies are a type of society that can leave behind the ideology of national identity. They have undergone the requisite socioeconomic modernization are thoroughly adopted to cultural modernity with its characteristic differentiation between law and ethical cultural religious worldviews and have well-developed formal and informal public spheres. They are reconstituting the meaning of local, national, and global membership through processes of democratic iterations in which cosmopolitan norms enable new vocabularies of playmaking assume a concrete local and contextual coloration and often migrate across borders and jurisdictions in increasingly complex and interconnected dialogues, confrontations, and iterations. Let me now end with a disquieting conclusion. 
What I have called multilateral covenantalism is a new stage in the development of global civil society in which the relationship between state sovereignty and the spreading human rights regime may generate increasing interventionism on the one hand, as well as opening up spaces for democratic iterations on the other. I see no reason not to acknowledge the ambiguities of this moment between interventionism on the one hand and democratic iterations on the other. But as a critical social theorist, I seek for those moments of rupture and possible transformation when social actors reappropriate new norms, both to enable new subjectivities to enter the public sphere and to alter the meaning of claims making in the public sphere itself. This is the promise of democratic iterations and cosmopolitan norms in the present. However, despite these developments, I have the following disquieting thought. Increasingly, I'm convinced that we need to understand the creation of zones outside the law alongside this process. From renditions of enemy combatants to unknown locations with the cooperation of the US and European governments, to the emergence of maquiadoras in Central and South America and free growth zones in China, Southeast Asia, and not to mention the decline of the state everywhere in Africa, there is a process of de-juridification afoot. The attempt is to resist the spread of global law and to create enclaves of lawlessness and of the denial of the right to have rights altogether. In many free trade and free growth zones, the right of workers to fair pay, to assemble, unionize, and organize are suspended and violently controlled. In the desperate straits that the current world economic crisis will generate in many developing countries, it is likely that these human rights norms will be further suspended in a Faustian bargain to keep foreign direct investment coming and the economies growing. So further spiraling to the bottom. I don't have a good explanation for how or why these processes continue to ex coexist in the world society at the present. But I want to insist on the significance of existing instruments of cosmopolitan norms to help combat them. Such norms are not complicit in the legitimation of, but rather they are enabling conditions of resistance to the forces of a global capitalism run amok. Any defensible vision of global justice in the current world order will have to take these legal instruments and documents seriously and work with them rather than against them. For this project, we not only need to overcome the reductionist resistance of many on the left to the force of transnational law, but also the defensiveness and sovereignism of many on the right who see transnational law as undermining domestic sovereignty when in fact it can enhance people's sovereignty. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.